The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled The A-Team Against Relapse Refractory Myeloma. Community Strategies for Enhancing Outcomes with Potent CD38 Antibody Platforms. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash NRA 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hello and welcome to the A-Team Against Relapse and Refractory Multiple Myeloma. I'm Dr. Tom Martin from the University of California, San Francisco, and I'm pleased to be joined by my friend and colleague, uh, Beth Feynman from Cleveland Clinic. Um, today we're going to explore the use of CD38 monoclonal antibodies in relapse and refractory multiple myeloma. We're going to provide some guidance on you know, how physicians, nurses, and other professionals can truly work together to manage these patients who are relapsing after primary therapy, um, but who've not yet been exposed to one of what I think is one of the most effective treatment options, and that is the CD38 class of medications. Uh, During our discussion tonight, we will also share several resources that summarize important information on the safety and practical use of CD38 antibodies, as well as other resources that can be used when counseling patients Um, You want to refer to these practice aids throughout, so please take a moment now to download these tools before we get started. Okay, and with that, let's begin and talk about CD38 antibodies. Now, I'll start uh, with a timeline, a timeline that began in 2015. Um, And since then, we've obviously had great progress with use of CD38 antibodies, but they came on to the myeloma treatment paradigm back in 2015 with the approval of our first CD38 antibody, which was daratumumab. And soon thereafter, we had approval of the first SLAM F7 antibody, elotuzumab. Now, both of these are considered, quote unquote, naked antibodies, where the antibody binds to the cell surface protein and induces an anti-cancer effect. And we'll talk more about the mechanism of action in a minute. Now, over the ensuing you know, four to five years, there was actually um, many studies ongoing, some of which we'll talk about, um, expanding the use of daratumumab from a single agent to use um, in combinations. Um, and then in 2020, we had the initial approval of isatuximab, the second CD38 monoclonal antibody, and its initial approval was in combination. And then over the, the next year or so, we saw some expa- more expanded use of CD38 antibodies, including um, the use of isatuximab um, with additional combinations. And then we had approval of our first BCMA-directed therapy, and that was belantamab mafodotin, which is approved in 2021. Now, unfortunately, that, that therapeutic has now been taken off the market. But since, we've had approval of multiple other um, next-generation antibodies. And these antibodies are not naked antibodies, but rather are bispecific T-cell engaging antibodies. And we've had approval of two BCMA um, and CD3 binding antibodies, the first one to clistamab in 2022, and then the second elranatumab in 2023. Now we also had approval of our first uh, GPRC5D um, binding uh, monoclonal antibody. This one targets GPRC5D and CD3, another bispecific, and that was in 2023. Now, LRAN and TAL, what we, the, the way we call them, have really just started their, their clinical use. But teclistamab we've had for the last year. And it's been real fun trying to integrate these antibodies. But it also is important um, in how we integrate the CD38 antibodies into our treatment paradigm. And Beth and I will talk much more about that as we go on um, with this discussion. Despite uh, progress, um, I I do wanna point out that, and this slide points out, what the integration has been of these therapeutics into the myeloma treatment uh, paradigm. And this really is data from 2016 to about 2021. And this is looking at patients that are eligible for stem cell transplant. And you see the left bar is patients 
what they receive for frontline or first-line therapy, and to the right is what patients receive for second-line-based therapy. So in, um, in frontline or first-line therapy, you know, these transplant-eligible patients typically get a PI, an IMID, um, and a you know, dexamethasone, a triplet-based therapy. And obviously, VRD has been our garnered triplet for frontline therapy. But there are still some patients that just get perhaps a doublet or, um, or bortezomib with cyclophosphamide and dexamethasone, that triplet, or a PI-based triplet as frontline therapy. And many fewer, uh, fewer patients that just receive you know, image-based frontline therapy. So RD sometimes is used as frontline, but not so much, especially in the transplant-eligible population. And then you see at the bottom in green, very few patients were getting monoclonal antibodies, specifically CD38 monoclonal antibodies, frontline therapy. And I do think that in time, that is going to change. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. But between 2016 and 2021, here's the data. Not many people getting frontline monoclonal antibody. If you look to the right in terms of second line over this time, you see that the, the green bar has really e increased dramatically. So, so people have been using CD38s potentially as second line therapy. But even in, in my mind, even this points out that after second line therapy, people have even been saving CD38 antibody therapy for down the road for third line, fourth line. And I will say that my preference is to use CD38 antibody either in the first or second line, potentially in the third line of therapy. You want to try to use that important therapeutic earlier on in the treatment course. And now after third line, Hopefully, we're going to have all these new agents like CAR T cells and bispecific T cell engagers, and there'll be more ADCs as as you know as we develop more therapies for myeloma. So, use these. In my mind, my guide for you guys is use these therapies um, early on in therapy. But you can see in second line, there's a variety of other things that people choose. PI plus imid. You know, if they got VRD, then maybe they're getting POM. You know, carfilzomib dex as their next agent or they're going to an IMID-based uh, regimen like POM, cytoxin, and dexamethasone, or a PI-based regimen, Velcade with another partner, or, uh, or bortezomib in another partner, or carfilzomib in another partner. So that's what it looks like in transplant-eligible. If we look at transplant-ineligible patients, um, it looks a little bit different, in fact. So if you look in terms of frontline therapy in red, you see that it's almost half of the patients that get a PI-based frontline therapy. And that might be bortezomib and dexamethasone. It might be bortezomib cyclophosphamide and dexamethasone. I call it my, my LOL, my little old lady regimen, where they come once a week, you give them all their therapy, and they're done. I do like that in some patients that are transplant ineligible. But we're going to see more data, again, using CD38's frontline in an older population um, and I'll, we'll go over some of that data. And I think the, those numbers are going to increase. If we look at the CD38, again, in the transplant ineligible, you see the green bar. It's really a small number, right? That is the bar that, in my mind, is going to grow the most. Even, you know, I think it's going to grow more even in transplant ineligible patients, especially with the advent of the Maya trial, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But there are some people that do get triplets um, in the transplant um, ineligible or uh, not intended to go through transplant. So, you know, VRD can still be used in quite a, quite a few of those patients. And then if you look at, um, again, at second-line therapy, you see that the monoclonal antibodies um, choice, again, is, is, is a larger fraction, still only 15% of patients. And for, in my practice, in terms of transplant ineligible, in first-line or second-line therapy, I would say upwards of 80 plus percent of my patients have had a monoclonal antibody-based therapy. So here we just see 17%, and I think in most academic centers it is literally 80 plus, it might even be 90 plus percent of either frontline and plus second-line therapy because you want to use these potent agents and, and I will say a, a, a less toxic regimen uh, earlier on in patients' uh, treatment course. Okay, so more goals for today. Uh, I do want to um, 
you know, help improve your understanding of the latest clinical evidence supporting CD38-based platforms. We're going to talk a little bit about newly diagnosed but and, and then more on relapse and refractory. Um, and also provide some guidance. Beth and I will go over some cases that will help provide guidance on how to select these and, and really how to sequence them. I don't think there's a right way to sequence therapies at the current time, but you'll kind of get a flavor of some of our, um, our choices on how we would se sequence uh, these therapies. And, and we also want to, we want to equip you with the skills that you'll need to address dosing and safety considerations as you um, incorporate these therapies into your um, front line, second line, third line, and, and um, you know, further um, as you're treating myeloma patients. Now, I will say this is, this is brought to you um, in part by Health Tree Foundation, formerly known as Myeloma Crowd. Um, and they are supporting patient-centric communities enabled with data tools to improve patient outcomes. And they, you know, they really want to deliver um, as fast as possible our uh, kind of our timeline to cures. Now, you know, as you know, we don't really say we cure patients with myeloma, but I do think there's a small fraction that, um, that um, have functional cures that die of other things and not myeloma. So that's important. But, and I think that number is going to increase as, as we develop even more novel drugs. Okay, so let's set the foundation for CD38 antibodies um, in relapse refractory myeloma. Let's talk about some of the evidence. Um, before, um, before we get there, I do want to actually go over, you know, and I'm sure people have seen this um, uh, before, but I want to talk about the mechanism of action of monoclonal antibodies. And some, maybe the, some of the things I'm going to say you haven't heard before. Um, and so CD38 antibodies, you know, are basically targeting CD38 on the cell surface of the plasma cell. CD38 is a receptor. It's also an ectoenzyme. It actually is important for NAD homeostasis, as it also controls some calcium flux in the cell. But in fact, for CD38 antibody therapy, it is only a target. It's a target for the monoclonal antibodies. There's three main ways that these work. One is apoptosis, second is complement-mediated cytotoxicity, and third is the antibody-dependent cell-mediated cytotoxicity. So let's talk briefly about apoptosis. Now, these antibodies differ esituximab and daratumumab on the way they induce apoptosis. Esituximab, in fact, was selected um, for development based on its ability to induce apoptosis um, by itself. Um, in vitro. And so this drug um, induces apoptosis without a secondary antibody or otherwise known as cross-linking. And so that was the potent anti-plasma cell effect that it provided that that was selected to you know, move forward. Um, daratumumab uh, was actually selected based on its ability to induce complement-mediated cytotoxicity or CDC. So daratumumab induces less apoptosis. In fact, it needs cross-linking of a secondary antibody to induce apoptosis, but better complement-mediated cytotoxicity. Now, the two both induce potent antibody-dependent cell-mediated cytotoxicity through, you know, NK cells recognizing FC and engulfing the plasma cell or antibody-dependent cellular phagocytosis, or ADCP, where the macrophage actually recognizes the FC or antibody bound to the plasma cell and then choose that. And, and it's very possible that, in fact, clinically in the patient, that it's ADCC and ADCP that's the most important uh, phenomenon for anti-myeloma effect. But there are differences and potentially that might um, uh, lead to differences in partnering of various drugs, et cetera. Now, um, let's, let's look here at really um, the myeloma treatment paradigm. And what I like to you know, talk to patients and other doctors and everybody about is, you know, we need to find where and, and what combination these antibodies will have its most potent impact, okay? They, these antibodies obviously were tested in the late way to the right of the slide in the relapse and refractory disease and had a response rate in the order of 20 to 30%. But now we're moving them in, com, uh, you know, in combinations earlier in uh, therapy and 
early relapse, you know, one to three prior lines of therapy, and now actually in frontline therapy and in combinations of frontline. And you see a variety of combinations here that, you know, that we have tested and we have some trials that are uh, continue to be ongoing. Now the NCCN guidelines, we recently just updated these guidelines for what we, um, you know, would recommend. Um, and these are recommendations for newly diagnosed myeloma as primary therapy. And we have preferred, um, preferred regimens. So um, VRD or bortezomib, linolidomide, and dexamethasone is a preferred regimen. We also recommend uh, um, carfilzomib, lenalidomide, and dexamethasone. But we also now have quadruplets that we're recommending. And one of them is with daratumumab, with a CD38. So daratumumab, um, bortezomib, lenalidomide, and dexamethasone, or, or dara VRD. And that was based on data from the Griffin study, a really, um, in my mind, important randomized phase two study that showed a very high, almost 100% response rate for the quadruplet in newly di diagnosed myeloma. And one of the largest um, um, data sets to show that achieving MRD negativity is achievable with a quadruplet, an autologous transplant, and maintenance with daratumumab and lenalidomide, where really over 60% of the patients achieved MRD negativity, which is really a, um, a large number. But there's other multi-agent antibody platforms that are recommended by NCCN based on other phase two and phase three uh, studies, DARA-VTD, DARA-KRD, DARA-VCD, and ESA-RVD based on um, a study done in German, uh, Germany, it's a GMMG um, HD7 trial, which is a randomized phase three trial that showed a better MRD negativity from the ESA quadruplet versus RVD. And we're looking at um, you know, additional data down the road in terms of PFS, what is gonna be, a, I think, an important endpoint for some of these frontline therapies. It's just gonna take a long time for us to get some of these data. So if we look at um, non-transplant candidates, uh, we also have an, you know, a number of preferred um, uh, regiments. We have some triplets. We have basically VRD, which has been a standard one based on the SWOG777 study. Um, and we also have recommended the DARE2, mablenalidomide, and dexamethasone based on the Maya study. And DRD with a PFS now mature enough to tell us that it's just over 60 months of PFS from frontline therapy. For me, tells me that daratumumab um, lenalidomide index is a really good regimen for frontline therapy in, in, um, in patients that are transplant ineligible. And you see on the right of this slide, we have a variety of other recommendations for non-transplant um, uh, patients, including other CD38-containing antibody uh, regimens like dara-VMP or, again, dara-VCD. Um, okay, so... Now, in the relapse refractory setting, there's been a lot of activity with CD38 antibodies. And with the NCCN guidelines, we really list all the ones that have actually shown benefit in phase three trials. It's hard in the NCCN guidelines to really go into sequencing. And that's what hopefully we're gonna get into today is to, talk to, um, is to discuss some of the sequencing, especially when we get to the cases on how we would implement some of these. But, you know, common triplets that we use in early relapse, one to three prior lines of therapy, is daratumumab plus carfilzomib index, or DKD, daratumumab plus lenalidomide index, or DRD, esituximab carfilzomib index, or ESA-KD. Um, we also have uh, daratumumab with bortezomib index, daravd. Um, so we have quite a few regimens that actually have shown benefit in most studies when compared to a doublet. So the triplet, when you add CD38 versus the doublet, the triplet you know, always wins in my mind. And these drugs are very potent in a single agent, it's even more potent in combination. Now I wanna go over a few of the individual trials so that we can um, you know, just give you a flavor for what we're talking about in terms of PFS and how people have done from this. And then again, we'll get into some of the cases. So the first one I'll talk about is the Apollo trial. So this is a randomized phase three trial. It was uh, 
uh, daratumumab pomalidomide index versus pomalidomide index. And this, these are in patients that had received one um, uh, to up to uh, four prior lines of therapy. And essentially, the median prior line of therapy was two. Um, but majority of these patients actually were um, lenalidomide refractory. So this was really a kind of a tougher patient population. And when we look at the uh, Apollo trial, um, uh, we had um, a, a randomized trial that showed a PFS in patients getting a DPD that was right around 12 months versus a PFS of PD that was right around, was right around four months. So this was basically um, a positive study with a good hazard ratio showing advantage of DPD versus PD. Okay, and so a similar trial was done um, when combining daratumumab with a PI-based doublet, and the doublet here was carfilzomib and dexamethasone. It's the CANDOR trial, so another large randomized phase three trial of daratumumab plus carfilzomib and dexamethasone versus carfilzomib and dexamethasone. Um, and these patients actually were less heavily pretreated. Only about a third of the patients were lenalidomide refractory in this. And this is one to three prior lines of therapy. Um, but you can see when adding daratumumab, a CD38, to KD, the PFS is 28.6 months, you know, a very, uh, a very good uh, PFS, versus about 15 months for KD. Um, and that's really what the expected response rate that you would get with KD. So a marked advantage, again, of triplet versus doublet, a marked advantage of adding daratumumab to KD. And in addition, there was not any significant difference in grade three and four toxicity. The only significant difference was there was an increased um, uh, incidence of pneumonia in patients receiving CD38 versus KD, but no increase in heart disease, no significant increase really in, in um, blood count suppression or other uh, non-hematologic toxicity, very well tolerated regimen. Now, if we look at the uh, candor and we look at um, you know, subsets of patients of who benefited from K, um, um, DARA KD versus KD, you could see um, essentially on, on this forest plot that almost everybody who received this actually benefited from the triplet versus the doublet, um, including you know, some harder to treat patients like stage three patients or patients that high, had high-risk cytogenetics. And those that had high-risk cytogenetics, in, in terms of this is over, looking at overall survival, you had an overall survival of 34 months in patients getting um, DARA KD versus 17 months of KD. That's a really dramatic difference between the, between the two. And so somebody, in fact, that has high-risk cytogenetics, this is a potential regimen that we, we would use based on these really nice um, results. Now, um, isatuximab has also been tested with next generation IMIDs, as well as next generation proteasome inhibitors. Um, a study that I was involved with is the Akima uh, study. Uh, Akima um, basically was a very large randomized study. Again, it was a triplet isatuximab, carfilzomib index versus carfilzomib index. I will say that in these, the carfilzomib index was given at a little higher dose of carfilzomib, 56 milligrams per meter squared, day one, two, eight, nine, 15, and 16. That was both in Ikema as well as in Candor, um, together with the CD38 antibody. What we showed from Ikema is that the triplet of ESA-KD actually had one of the longest PFS that we've seen um, with a CD38 plus a PI. It was 36 months. Um, the PFS with KD was about 19 months with a really nice hazard ratio of 0.58. And again, a very well-tolerated triplet regimen. I'll add that these patients, almost 40% of the patients on ESA-KD achieved MRD negativity. And we haven't talked, we haven't been able to talk much about MRD negativity in the relapse and refractory setting, but in fact, almost 40% of the patients achieved MRD negativity. It's a pretty remarkable result. So now, um, we also, um, at ASH 2022, we looked at patients that um, had um, functional high-risk disease, so they had early relapse to their frontline therapy, and then went on to receive um, ESA-KD versus KD, and we show here a PFS in the functionally high-risk of 26 months in functionally high-risk versus um, 
versus 16 months in just getting KD. I will say that that 26 months almost doubled the PFS that the patients had in their first line of therapy. So a very potent regimen um, in this setting and patients have functional high risk. So for me in functional high risk, a CD38 plus carfilzomib index is a really nice choice for their regimen. And similar to what I showed you for data with the CANDOR study of DARA-KD, here with chemo with ESA-KD, you see that almost all subsites, uh, sub, excuse me, subgroups of patients benefited from this triplet um, versus the doublet-based therapy. If we look at patients that specifically have high-risk disease, with Ikema, and if we look at the patients that have 1Q21 gain, you see that their PFS is actually 26 months with ESA-KD versus only 16 months with KD. So again, if patients have high-risk cytogenetics, um, in fact, we go to a CD38 plus carfilzomib and dexamethasone. That's one of, the, one of the ones that I really like to choose. Um, I will also say that um, Isatuximab has been co combined nicely with pomalidomide and dexamethasone. This was the, the noted in the Nicaria trial, another very large phase three study of Isapomdex versus Pomdex. Uh, this study with pomalidomide again enrolled patients that had um, more exposure to prior IMIDs. More than 90% of these patients were refractory to lenalidomide. But that said, in the um, in the lenalidomide refractory uh, patient population, isatuximab, pomalidomide, and dexamethasone, and dexamethasone showed a PFS that was just over 11.5 um, months versus pomalidomide and dexamethasone that was right around six months. So again, the triplet of isatuximab plus pomdex was better than the doublet of pomdex. Um, and we showed data from Icuria also that this, um, this benefit was also in patients that had the 1Q21 gain. So 1Q21 gain, ESA-PD is also a, a good regimen to select in that uh, patient population. Okay, now one thing about CD38 antibody that we'll talk a little bit more in a, in a minute, and that is um, convenience of administration. So daratubumab right now has two formulations that that's approved, subcutaneous as well as an intravenous formulation. Um, most centers have actually converted to the subcutaneous just based on convenience. Isatuximab is currently in clinical trials uh, using a subcutaneous device. Here's the on-body delivering system or the OBDS that you can see in this, this disc that you see in the picture here. Um, in this disc, the disc has an adhesive and it's put on just over the abdomen and the center button, you push the center button, and then it um, automatically um, administers the, the fixed dose of isatuximab over approximately five minutes. And so it's a, it's a wearable device in the clinic. Patients come to the clinic, the device is put on, you hit the button, and five minutes later, the isatuximab is administered as a subcutaneous injection. This was tested um, together um, in a trial, um, a, a multi-arm phase one, trial um, with pomalidomide and dexamethasone where patients, some patients received the IV and some patients received uh, two different doses of the subcutaneous um, dosing of isatuximab. And in fact, you can see in the bottom right here that all of those groups had very nice overall response rates between 67 to as high as 80%. So it looks like the subcutaneous administered uh, isatuximab works just as well as the intravenous administered. And obviously subcutaneous, uh, and we'll talk about it more in a minute, uh, likely is uh, a more favorable way to administer both because of convenience, but also because of safety. And so um, now I'd like to um, switch over to um, bring Beth in and we're gonna do some cases. Uh, I will say my take home points treatment for the community. Number one, CD38 uh, based therapy right now is one of the most effective therapies that we have for multiple myeloma. When we have an effective therapy like that, the earlier along that we use it, in my mind, the better. So you should really, in your practice, be targeting using it in frontline, if it works for you, or as 
uh, second line or at the latest in my mind, third line therapy. And so CD38s should be uh, targeted for patients. It's extremely well tolerated, especially um, tolerated in the transplant ineligible population. And it's works especially well in my mind in the transplant eligible population in that they get a deeper remission prior to going on to stem cell transplant. I didn't show you any of those data, but um, the Griffin study uh, showed a lot of that. Um, and I will refer you to that. And then lastly, um, you know, we're, um, we're currently working on sequencing of a lot of these therapeutics. If we use it in the front line, can we use it again later? Or if we don't use it in the front line, what's the best combination to use it in second line? These are the things that I think are patient specific. We're still you know, forging those paths and we're gonna talk about it more with our cases. So with that, I'm gonna turn it over to you, Beth. Thank you so much, Dr. Martin, for that elegant overview of CD38 monoclonal antibodies. I think the data is very compelling for their use. And, and it's so funny because for a long time, the CD38, such as daratumumab, that was approved in 2015, so many people are still waiting to use it. Like, I think this myeloma, wouldn't you agree, is one of the only diagnoses where you'll wait and save one of your best therapies for down the road. But so many studies show all this attrition with therapies, as you kind of um, uh, shared before as well. So let's dive into a case and kind of bring it all together. And so um, this is our case study. Robert is a 69-year-old male who presents with lower back pain, very classic presentation symptom for myeloma, no other past medical history, maybe a little bit of hypertension, not much of else. Um, X-rays showed multiple lytic lesions, compression fractures, L1, L3, um, pretty classic. He had an elevated beta-2 microglobulin, normal you know, albumin, IgG kappa monoclonal protein spike, 3.4 grams per deciliter. Again, IgG kappa tends to be more um, commonly found. And quote unquote, standard risk, right? You know, many of our patients with IgG kappa tend to be more standard risk. His bone marrow biopsy, unfortunately, showed 70% plasma cells, but fortunately, his fish showed hyperdiploidy as well as translocation of 1114. And until recently, I was super excited when I saw 1114. I think there's still role for that. We're not gonna talk about 1114 today. Maybe we'll ask your impressions later on, Dr. Martin. But um, going into the treatment history, he had VRD times four, which we saw in the, in the earlier Dr. Martin presented that that's a very common classic regimen, stem cell transplant, then lead maintenance, kind of like a recipe, right? Unfortunately, he's what we call an early relapser, right? 13 months he relapsed, he should have gotten much more mileage with standard risk features than he did. He was had a rising capillanda free light chain and that was 223 and a new soft tissue mass in the retroperitoneum. Sometimes I call these people light chain escape. You know, he's got this intact M spike, but now his free light chain is what's rising and signaling that new soft tissue tumor. So he's functional high risk. Rebone marrow biopsy shows less than 5% plasma cells, and it's concerning, right? Dr. Martin, what do you think about a patient like this that has a new soft tissue mass, not a huge spike in the capillary light chain, and relapses only 13 months later? Yeah, so you bring up some really important points. One is, um, in terms of following these patients after they receive transplant and maintenance-based therapy, we, we do need to check regularly their light chains because more and more we're seeing this light chain escape. And if you were just following their SPEP, you might have missed this progression for sure. Um, and yeah, so this person has functional high risk because they've relapsed so quickly after stem cell transplant. Based on the determination trial in where patients got you know RVD as frontline therapy, a transplant, um, and then got lenalidomide maintenance afterwards, you would expect the PFS of 65 months. So we're 13 months to 65 months. There was nothing in his history that would have led us to believe you know, that he wasn't gonna do so well. We, he, he should have been that 65 month um, you know, person of remission, unfortunately not. But so he, so he has functional high risk. He also has a new soft tissue mass, so his EMD our other bad actor. And so these two things, um, in my mind, are part of our unmet medical need in myeloma. We definitely need better drugs for these, but 
certainly this is not a person that we can sit on and say, let's wait and see what happens. Um, so, um, you know, with this, uh, with this bone marrow biopsy uh, showing less than 5% plasma cells, that's kind of in my mind a fake out that these guys can have spotty disease. Just because they have the bone marrow doesn't look so bad doesn't mean you can just wait because the bone marrow looks looks so well, so so bad. You have to treat this one right away. Completely agree. Yeah, absolutely. And rechecking the cytogenetics I think is super important because he had quote unquote a good type of clone. But again, I don't know if we're able to capture many of these abnormal clones because he only had five percent clonal plasma cells. Um, and that's you know we'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. Um, I think when I see somebody like Robert, early relapse, as Dr. Martin had said, you know, he kind of faked us out here, right? We thought he was going to get closer to 65 months on that LEN maintenance. And unfortunately, despite that standard risk features, he did relapse. So goals of therapy primarily include disease control. He's got extramedullary disease. He's got rising kappa-free light chains, which um, we need to, to treat him with something else. And, and I, in my mind, a CD38 platform first relapse, one of our best drugs would, would be something that I would consider. And so we'll talk a, a minute uh, in a few minutes, I think, about the selection process and the sequencing of these drugs. But and we'll also talk about the practical aspects of the side effects as well. So when I explain treatment principles to patients with relapsed refractory myeloma as a nurse, nurse practitioner, provider, whatever, I have lots of hats in the clinic, right? Uh, researcher, of course, clinical trial. We haven't gotten to where we are without clinical trials, right? So I always talk about tr clinical trials if, uh, if possible, but what's the timing of the relapse? We already talked about our case study, it was rapid. So what's the response to prior therapy? Is he sensitive to lenalidomide or is he refractory to lenalidomide? You know, we can mix and match the different classes of drugs, but for our purposes, we kind of have to say he's refractory to lenalidomide because he progressed on lenalidomide. And that's a, a point of discussion that we'll probably have another time, right? Uh, aggressiveness of the relapse, he's got new tumors, but he doesn't have hypercalcemia renal failure or cytopenias, but what's his performance status? Again, this trap is a way to kind of sort out what to offer to patients, um, what worked, what didn't work. These are all considerations at relapse. Dr. Martin, so, so what are your key take home points for Robert's case? So this is, a, I think, a fairly common case that we see, unfortunately. So Robert um, got very good effective therapy for frontline VRD transplant, lend maintenance, and then became refractory very soon thereafter. And so in that case, like we discussed, I would use a CD38 together with a PI in dexamethasone, and mostly because the data has shown that that provides the longest progression-free survival. As I showed data from the Ikema study, the PFS, if you use ESA-KD, was right around 25 months. That almost would double his initial PFS. Um, and once he goes through that therapy, I always think about what is next after that in terms of sequencing. So if he get ESA-KD, then I would switch next, switch around to a pomalidomide-based therapy, maybe pomalidomide um, elituzumab and dexamethasone or pomalidomide cyclophosphamide and dexamethasone. So the switching around of antibodies and PIs and, and IMIDs are really you know, how we deal with it in myeloma, right? Yeah, and I think those are really important points, and that's, from my perspective, how I educate the patients. We're going to mix and match to try to find the right recipe. And before you had on your slide, um, kind of from the Melphaland days, the old, you know, that most patients start out as MGUS, and then they progress into active myeloma, and we used to have those plateau phases, right? That's what we used to say their remission was. They were plateaued because we didn't have effective therapies, but I kind of educate the patients that maybe you're only getting a short remission now, but that next therapy is the best recipe for you, so we could be getting more longer and durable remissions if we're sequencing and selecting the right therapies. So thank you for your insights. When we're looking at the CD38s, okay, we decided we're probably going to give this guy a CD38 monoclonal antibody. Let's talk about daratumumab. So there's two formulations, as Dr. Martin had mentioned, already FDA approved in the United States and many other parts of the world. The sub-Q daratumumab hyaluronidase is a flat dose. It's about 15 milliliters that's injected subcutaneously over about three to five minutes. It's nice because they come in 
like the little old ladies, the LOLs, they come in, they get their cookies, they see the nurses, they get out of their house. What's nice about it is it's weekly for eight weeks, then every other week for about three months and then monthly. So it has this built-in maintenance schedule, dose de-escalation, especially for our non-transplant eligible patients who might not be going to transplant first or second line. So at any rate, that's uh, real safe and easy to give. We do some observation, we'll talk about that in a moment. Intervenous, remember when this was approved in 2015 in that November to remember when there were four drugs approved that year and three in November, um, 16 milligrams per kilogram dosing schedule and it's a long day. Patients are there for eight to 10 hours if they don't have infusion-related uh, reactions. And the DARA sub-Q formulation tends to have a lot less infusion-related reactions than the intravenous if you give a appropriate premedication. And there is split dosing, however, for IV if the patient has an implanted port, wants that IV dosing, we can appropriately premedicate them and give that. In terms of esetuximab, it is intravenously available currently. There are investigations, Dr. Martin mentioned, the on-body delivery system that's in current uh, clinical studies, non-inferiority studies right now, I believe. Um, at any rate, uh, it's administered every week for four weeks and then every two weeks until disease progression or unacceptable toxicity. The infusion rate goes down to 75 minutes after an uh, initially slow um, infusion rate, just like with the daratumumab. The most common adverse events with um, esetuximab is very similar to the daratumumab, and it's primarily infusion-related reactions and pneumonias. There is some uh, diarrhea that might be more related to esetuximab, um, but that might be related to some of the other drugs as well. And we'll talk about in combination with um, carfilzomib dex or palmdex, et cetera. So in terms of the principles of nursing care or supportive care with these CD38 platforms, again, I, I think of it as a, you know, a care plan. At the end of all of my office notes, I say, okay, what's their bone health? What's their VTE risk? What is their infection risk? What's their hematologic parameters? Well, actually the heme goes higher because that's really important, but um, the thromboprophylaxis is not necessary for CD38s. Um, not necessarily with carfilzomib either, but when you add in an imid, especially if you're adding in like a carfilzomib and an imid, that can really increase your risk of, of venous thromboembolic events, right? Because uh, multiple myeloma is, a, is an inherently coagulable disorder. We always wanna put our patients on shingles prophylaxis regardless of their zoster vaccination status because the Schenkrix trials did not include patients who were on active immunotherapy or monoclonal antibody therapy. I always counsel on premedication. So we're looking at like an H1 blocker such as diphenhydramine, H2 blockers such as famotidine, acetaminophen, and then the dexamethasone. We can ditch the diphenhydramine, which is typically 25 to 50 milligrams, after the first couple doses, it's institution dependent and provider dependent. We always wanna counsel on the sub-Q versus the IV administration. We have some observation after the sub-Q um, daratumumab hyaluronidase, um, but no observation after the IV um, formulations. And then we wanna consider immunoglobulin replacement for IgG levels less than 400. We discussed briefly about the increased risk of infection with the monoclonal antibodies. And if the IgG level is less than 400, I have people in the 100s that do fine, but if you have an IgG level less than 400, you can have this functional hypogammaglobulinemia, whereas that would be appropriate. Always want to screen for hepatitis B core antibody and surface antigen prior to treatment initiation with these CD38s. There is recent papers out about the reactivation of the um, hepatitis. And so our standard is every six months, we are going to check for the hep B core antibody and surface antigen and initiate prophylaxis with Intecavir if the hep B core antibody is positive. And that's something that our practice has changed a little bit more recently about. Um, also, there's an interference in not only the response with esetuximab and daratumumab, um, but also interference with the blood cross and type matching. So if you have patients on the IG, um, the antibody, anti-CD38 antibodies, uh, the IgG-kappa um, is the type of the antibody, IgG-kappa 1. And so let's say you have a patient with lambda, you're going to see IgG-kappa in the blood, and the patient's going to be like, 
where did this M spike come from? And you want to educate them, well, it's loosely expressed on the red blood cells and it can cause interference with response. And so you have to counsel the patient against that and maybe counsel yourself if you didn't realize that that was an, a, a thing. And then COVID vaccine response, again, any vaccines, we really want to try to get before therapy if possible, but that's not always possible. As I mentioned previously, um, the IV sub-Q daratumumab and esituximab have hypersensitivity reaction risk. I also mentioned that the IV daratumumab has a higher risk than the sub-Q daratumumab. You can see the hypersensitivity reactions listed here, 48% uh, with the IV dara, 11% with the sub-Q dara, and then the esituximab is 38 to 40% um, percent as well, um, despite the pre-medications. In my patients that are a little more old, frail, COPD, status perhaps, I do still add Montlucas 10 milligrams um, sometimes before the IV dara. I don't worry as much with the sub-Q dara because of the lower incidence, but if I'm really worried about the respiratory status or the frailty status, um, you know, the Singular and the Montlucas are, are, is um, and loratadine and Montlucas, thank you, sorry about that, um, 10 milligrams each and for the first couple weeks just to decrease that risk of hypersensitivity reaction. Required pre-meds vary according to the product, but again, the H1, H2 blocker, corticosteroid, and have a um, hypersensitivity protocol already for your nurses in the clinic if it occurs. So that's about it. Um, let's move on to the next case. Uh, I'd like to hear Dr. Martin's thoughts on this one. So Caroline is a 74-year-old woman who initially presented with fatigue. Her CBC showed anemia with a hemoglobin of 10 grams per deciliter, mild renal insufficiency, who knows if it was from hypertension, diabetes, or whatnot, but her creatinine was 2. Because of that, she had an elevated beta-2 microglobulin. LDH was fortunately normal. Um, M-spike was 5 grams per deciliter, so she'd probably had MGUS, then smoldering, and then now she's full-blown myeloma by the time she comes in. Um, according to the slim crab criteria, she does have uh, that 60% clonal bone marrow plaza cells, creatinine that's probably due to the disease status. Um, FISH was positive for 11, DEL13Q. She started on VCD times six cycles. Her creatinine improved to 1.5, yay. So GFR improving is good. Um, so then she was able to go on to lenalin of my maintenance for one year. Um, Dr. Martin, share your thoughts about this case study, how she presented and what the provider probably thought about in treatment selection. Yeah, this is a very common presentation, especially uh, in an older uh, person who you know has this mild uh, elevation in the creatinine, which could be, again, medical renal, or it could be actually from the myeloma proteins, or sometimes they're actually plasma cells in the kidneys. Um, and so when the creatinine's elevated, probably the most common regimen that we all use is bortezomib, cyclophosphamide, and dexamethasone. We get a little nervous with lenalidomide, with renal insufficiency in terms of what the right dosing is, et cetera. Um, and then, so a lot of us start off with VCD and then potentially would switch over to, to VRD once the creatinine gets a little better. Um, you know, this patient received six cycles of induction. I'd like to see what happened with the M protein. For me, it's not just a wrote six cycles. If they potentially still had an M protein of one and a half or one, I might give them eight cycles. I might give them 10 cycles, but the last four might be RVD to try to get them to a little right. deeper remission and then put them on lenalidomide maintenance. I think that's pretty standard therapy and I think it was done well in this, in this case. Right, and I like to um, consider cyclophosphamide. Too many times we'll start people on uh, the VCD, or if you're in Ontario, it's Cyborg-D, but uh, too many times we, st we start people on cyclophosphamide and then it just keeps going. I worry about bone marrow um, long-term, so I think six to eight cycles at a time is probably our preference, um, and I agree 100%. Uh, but again, 24 months of remission, she didn't get a transplant, she didn't have two high, even she had Del 13Q, but uh, we did re-bone marrow biopsy here, just like we discussed with Robert. He didn't have any new clones, didn't have a lot of plasma cells in there, but now she's got a new 1Q gain um, that's shown up, and that might ex uh, explain why she progressed after just 24 months. 
So goals of care for Caroline, just like with Robert, you know, disease control, what worked, what didn't work. And we heard from you before, Dr. Martin, you would consider her Len Refractory because she was on Len Maintenance and now she's got this 1Q gain. What do you think about the Ikema uh, data and some of the data you presented? Um, would you prefer to go to Isatuximab versus the Daratumumab in this person? Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, for sure, in this case, um, uh, there, there was some data from the CANDOR looking at high-risk disease, and there was data from IKEMA looking at specifically at 1Q21, and I told you there's data from Icaria, that CD38s work, in my mind, really well in the relapse refractory setting in those patients that have high risk. It's probably, again, a, n a nice reason for us to select a CD38 plus a partner. In this patient, you know, I would... I would, um, you, I'd want to see again what their creatinine is. I'd like to see what their blood pressure is. You know, because you have to make a choice between carfilzomib or pomalidomide. What's the partner going to be? Carfilzomib, pomalidomide, and dexamethasone. I would be okay with either one of those. I probably would choose carfilzomib if she was more robust. Her blood pressure was okay. Her creatinine was doing all right. If you know, she had blood pressure problems or the creatinine, you know, snuck up a little bit again to 1.8 or so, then I probably would go with pomalidomide because I think it does much better with the renal insufficiency uh, patients. Now, there, the ESA versus DARA, there might be, you know, there's, we have published data in the 1Q gain that it looks really good in terms of um, ESA KD as well as ESA POM DEX. And there might be some credence to esituximab in that setting. Um, you know, basically on 1Q are some complement um, proteins. Um, and so if those people that um, have, uh, sorry, complement inhibitory proteins, the, some people that have um, 1Q gain might have higher levels of complement inhibitory proteins. And they might be a little bit more, uh, you know, capable of suppressing some of the CDC effects of daratumumab, where with esituximab, it's more apoptosis and ADCC. So if you believe that logic, there might be some mild credence to that. That said, you can't make a bad choice if you cho choose a CD38 antibody with a good partner in this case. Those are some excellent points that you shared there, and, and thank you for sharing them. I, I think that, you know, for me, the one QK, I think, so it's esituximab, but, you know, do you do pomalidomide and a lower dose perhaps? And again, she's still younger and if she's really fit and uh, we'll talk about the blood pressure that you highlighted the importance of that in, in just a moment, but um, it, the presence of the 1Q um, amplification or gain is a high risk poor prognostic feature and it's something that we really want to address with one of our newer agents and the uh, CD38 monoclonal antibodies are perfectly poised to do that. The 1Q gain is noted as a high risk feature in NCCN guidelines and even just a few years ago it wasn't something that we talked much about. Um, you know, I've been in the myeloma space for 25 years and, and we didn't even really do fish until like the last 10 years, right? I mean, we were just starting to fish out those 17P, um, 11, 14, 14, 16, and, and um, all those other uh, high-risk features. But now we are recognizing that 17P and 1Q gain or amplification are those um, tricky, tricky cytogenetic abnormalities that we have to address. So um, counseling patients on the nuances of the safety management, let's say we give her carfilzomib. She's fit, she's 74, and if we don't use carfilzomib now in combination with the esituximab, we might not have an opportunity. And this proteasome inhibitor is really potent. The data are pretty strong for ESA-KD as well. So we're gonna talk to her about the pre-medication. We're gonna talk to her about the different dosing of the carfilzomib. So we have a priming dose, right, at 20 milligrams per meter squared squared, which is day one, cycle one, with a planned dose escalation to that therapeutic or planned dose. And I always like to remind my patients, it's not that you're not responding that I increased the dose week two, it's because that's how we give the drug. And so that, that makes them feel a little bit better. The carfilzomib-related hypertension is a big deal. There have been several papers in the last 10 years that have been trying to really identify why carfilzomib has associated cardiovascular adverse events, why some people do well, and some people don't. And it comes down to, in my mind, hypertension. When we're 
having our patients come to the treatment center, we're checking their blood pressure, but if they're 150, 160, over 80 or 90, we're not addressing it. So diuretics, antihypertensives, be very aggressive at controlling that blood pressure. And this is a perfect way to collaborate with your primary care team of your patient, get them in for their regular visits, and they can talk about other important things as well. If the hypertension cannot be controlled, it turns to be a grade three, which can be more concerning. And so you sometimes wanna consider interrupting or dose reducing the carfilzomib. I just wanna ask Dr. Martin briefly, what are your thoughts about echocardiograms, nt p with carfilzomib um, in these patients? Do you check those biomarkers? I, so that's a great question. And I think um, it depends on when the last echocardiogram was. If they haven't had one for quite some time, then I would do a baseline echo just to see where they are, if they're, especially if they're having any symptoms. I do actually check BNPs before uh, each cycle just to see. Because if you, you can get a little fooled that the BNP can actually go quite high despite that they don't look symptomatic whatsoever. And in that, in that case, I would potentially dose reduce the carfilzomib. Um, and, so, and, and also watch, try to watch their water weight and their gain, et cetera, quite closely. Yes, exactly. And, I, and cardiac amyloid, right? These patients are living longer than ever. And so always screening, especially with the lambda clone, although it can be with kappa, screening for um, uh, amyloidosis as well. So um, the health tree, as you heard, they're so passionate about supporting the community through education, empowering patients through data. They have so many different resources, such as the myeloma specialist directory. Um, it's it's so great to be able to partner, especially as we have bispecifics and CAR-Ts coming down the pike. That early first diagnosis or early relapse, you know, it's really good idea to get patients to see a specialist so you can collaborate. Um, we're not gonna steal your patients. We're hopefully gonna be able to share and then keep the patient in the um, in their community, right? Uh, the Health Tree Foundation's also uh, aim is to accelerate research. So they have a patient data portal that facilitates the data contributions and very comprehensive uh, myeloma data set with over 10,000 participating patients. So um, I just wanna wrap up with a few uh, key points of management of these patients. So we had great, great um, data overview by Dr. Martin early on about anti-CD38 um, data to support with uh, combinations of ESA-KD, DARA, POMDAX, and, and all of the different combinations. Um, but it's really important for nurses, providers, whoever, to make sure laboratory testing is done. Have the myeloma labs, especially in our relapse patients, done on a regular basis. I check myeloma labs in, on a monthly basis in the majority of our patients with CBC, chem panels, and immunoglobulins. And as Dr. Martin mentioned, don't forget to check the serum-free light chains, especially um, if, if they have an intact immunoglobulin M spike, they can still have this light chain escape. And we've all been burned at one time or another. Um, we might not want to admit it, but um, the bone marrow biopsy at relapse to look for those new aberrations, look for the new high-risk features using the plasma cell enrichment process. We've had discussions about that before, selecting the CD138 plasma cells, and you're more likely to identify those high-risk clones if you have that selected sample. Um, the radiologic imaging at relapse, again, restaging patients, echocardiograms, bone surveys we don't use as much anymore. If you have an MGUS patient that really doesn't smell like a myeloma or a smoldering patient, that's appropriate for patients to have a bone survey, but I really look for the more sensitive imaging, such as the whole body low-dose CT scan or PET CT scan, depending on what the insurance will approve. As I mentioned before, I have a, at the end of my note, I highlight what's their bone health, what's their infectious disease status, what's their GI health. So really at the beginning or the end of each note, especially when we're partnering and collaborating in care across different specialties or different hospital systems, making sure that you're looking at their bones for bone changes, optimizing vitamin D and calcium. In the older days of myeloma, we used to be really worried about hypercalcemia, but now we have such effective therapies to control the disease, and we have great bone-modifying agents such as zoledronic acid and denosumab, we wanna make sure that they are taking calcium and vitamin D for cancerous bone formation. Infectious disease is a big deal. We worry about these monoclonal antibody, the CD38 antibodies, causing an increased risk for um, pneumonias, gram-positive encapsulated organisms. We'll look at the IgG level, consider intravenous immunoglobulin, and then recommend the seasonal inactivated influenza 
influenza or other appropriate vaccines as well. The GI toxicities tend to be a lot less with the proteasome inhibitor, pomalidomide, and very low with the anti-CD38s, but you did see some diarrhea increase with the um, isatuximab more than um, some of the other arms in the phase three trials. Um, in terms of neurologic status, renal impairment, disease monitoring, all of these are super important. We saw Caroline, our case study had some renal insufficiency. Who knows what that was from? Hypertension, diabetes, uh, medical renal causes, but it can be from the myeloma itself. So avoiding renal toxic agents, CT dyes, um, MRI is fine. Um, and then don't forget to dose reduce your antibiotics, antiviral agents, and chemotherapy as needed. And of course, 100% health maintenance, partnering with the primary care and the survivorship care. Have them stay fit, healthy, eat a well-rounded you know, diet with lots of fruits and vegetables and healthy things. Don't start smoking if you've already stopped. Um, and I'll just leave you with um, the importance of uh, and the importance of uh, risk stratification for VTE prophylaxis. What I've been using lately in my practice is the Impede VTE scale. It takes into account the if they're on a modulatory drug, body mass index, are they on an ESA maybe for CKD stage three, um, are they on high doses of dexamethasone, ethnicity race, et cetera, and then it risk stratifies your patients. We saw um, retrospective uh, data from Morrill Sloan Kettering that was published a couple years about, it, about the increased incidence of thromboembolic events with the KRD versus um, when they were on just aspirin, the instance was like 16.6% on carfilzomib Lendex versus um, the when they added DOAX, it was down to 2.2%, and then including the major bleed was only 2.2%, which underscored that the KRD regimen might make patients at more high risk. And I'm mentioning that because we're seeing DARA KRD, we're seeing ESA KRD, and these things are gonna be coming down the pike. And then finally, the myeloma frailty score calculator. I don't know how frail Carol was, I don't know how frail Robert was, but I do the eyeball test in many cases, but if I really want a number to see how frail they are, taking into account their comorbid conditions, I'll plug in their um, my, myeloma frailty score uh, to use that as a decision-making. So um, again, this was such a great, great discussion. Dr. Martin, I'm gonna let you take us out of this program. Thank you. Well, that was wonderful, uh, Beth. Um, and so everybody, that concludes our exploration of team care with CD38 platforms and relapse refractory myeloma. I hope you found this activity informative. I did. I always learn when I, when I do these programs. Um, and hopefully it'll be useful for your practice. Um, and good luck. Thank you very much. Thank you. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. This activity is developed with our educational partner, the Health Tree Foundation for Multiple Myeloma. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash NRA860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Sanofi.